It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something to your own life. Beat it up and I've got no peace. The ladder puts a platter with a fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but it's just a gang. The government for hire in the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. As we know it, this is the hour of... Doom. And bloom. Although I will say we're in a cloud. That's right. We're in a Currently. cloud at the top of a mountain in Gallenberg, Tennessee. And you know what? It's sort of nice out there. Cool. And oh, yeah. Got a little mist in your Yesterday, face. Yesterday, I think it was a high of 51. Today, I don't know what the high is. I will check the weather. However, it has been cloudy like this for two days. Yep, it sure has. I think a cold front's coming through. Well, I think that uh, that would be just fine by me. I love the cold weather, but Sa- right now, yes, I have to welcome our friends to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, <laughs> a nanosecond of normality in a nation of nattering nabobs. Oh boy, I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Doctor Bones of DoomandBloom.net, where you'll find a thousand, indeed more than a thousand, post videos and podcasts. Uh, medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, uh, your hostess with, with the, the most. With the Weather girl! And today is a lovely 53 degrees. Tomorrow it will be 49 as a high. Well, that's a, that's in town. We're up high, uh, much higher that's than that. That's true. I don't, I don't see any snow, though. It no does snow. go down to... Ooh, 35. All right, we did have snow a few, Very nice. a few days ago. It was pretty cool. Unfortunately, we have to leave tomorrow. How sad is that? I know. We're leaving, going back to beautiful, hot, hot Florida, <laughs> sunny Florida. And uh, we'll be, you know, I mean, each place has its good its good things about it. Every Each place has I'm its I'm only bad saying things. that because it's hot. Yeah, it is hot. I wonder how our cantaloupes have taken over. Yeah, the patio. I know we have all sorts of different <laughs> plants growing. They've probably gone crazy. Absolutely, you know what? And we also have we're bringing home some oak acorns, some yeah, acorns, acorns, some uh, white oak acorns. And what we're going to do is we're going to keep them. That was them. interesting. What you found out about how to germinate those? Yeah, what you need to do is you need to get some peat moss or vermiculite. Mm-hmm. You take the acorns, you put them in the middle of that, and then put them in the refrigerator for about 45 days to mimic winter weather. So it's very possible that we might be able to get some sprouts, you know, and then once the 
We have an acorn with a taproot. We plant it indoors. It'll stay indoors um, with the taproot facing down until mm -hmm. it hits about four to six inches. By that time, it'll probably be spring uh, in Gatlinburg. We'll bring it up and we'll plant the forest. Well, you know, it's interesting that you said that because you also have to chill, I believe it was ginseng seeds that I got. And also, oh, garlic, the garlic bulbs. Yes. Yeah, the past years that we've planted garlic, yep. you, I had to put those in the refrigerator for a certain amount of time. Yeah, you know, these uh, plants need a certain pretend. amount of chill, chill hours. Yeah. And, and we're lucky to find some, uh, some food plants that we can actually plant in the winter, at least in Florida. That's uh, our that's, agricultural summer, I guess. That that's is, where most things are most productive. That's our growing time. Yep, absolutely. It's hard to find things that grow in the summer. Friends and neighbors. Yes. Have you been injured in an accident with an inebriated elk? Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Rasami, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when the hammer strikes, will you be the nail? Aha, what's your strategy when someone gets hurt or injured? Be a bystander and just uh, stand by? No, <laughs> no. don't do No, <laughs> you're going to show the world that you've got more sense than a suitcase full of salamanders by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at her store at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Believe me, they will help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster. And they're designed by, indeed, yours truly, an old country doctor, and hers truly, a high-tech advanced registered nurse <laughs> practitioner and certified <laughs> nurse so midwife. Crazy. Did I tell everybody how crazy you are? I don't think, I think they really know that, that do once they? or twice. <laughs> But I'll tell you one you thing. You know, you're a good crazy, though. I'm a good You're a happy crazy, happy a fun crazy, crazy um, a silly crazy. Yeah, a man. very funny, funny crazy. And an old crazy. No, no, no. Well, you know what? What? If you guys are wondering about our kits, just ask anybody who's ever bought one, and you'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Hey, you know, we learn as much from you do as we do from you. Well, what? Yes. Did I say that right? No, um, we we learn as much from, from you, them you as, as they learn you, from us. That's right. See how about that? I'm just I'm still learning how to speak. <laughs> so how about that? So you know what? Give it a go, GI Joe, and reach out to the geezer and his goddess. It's easy, and here's a lovely oh, nurse Amy to tell you how. Okay, email us at drbonespodcast at aol .com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Like and follow our Facebook page, Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. I have a couple of new ones, I think, since we did the show. Yep. Last week. I think you did. Yeah, I think you have a couple of new ones up. And I just want to say that you have some beer with you. 
Is that beer? What is that? No, this is root beer. Oh, root beer. Yep. This let me let beer. me take a look at it. Yes. Classic root beer by Stubborn Soda. Well, that must be a local micro root, root brewery. Root. <laughs> How about well, hey, that? if they can Very have good. beer breweries, they can. But I did find it was funny. I was looking up. I it wish, looks good. Yeah, it is good. Well, it's like real classically made root beer without all the crap. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that out loud. But anyway, um, I was looking up Doom and Bloom because you always want to make sure that nobody's out there stealing your website. Which, by the way, on Bing, if you look up Doom and Bloom. Every website that you guys see with black stars in the description is a fake website, and they will take you to some book. I forget the name of it. I should look that up. And it's they're using our keywords and our website, but only on Bing and Yahoo, but not Google. It won't happen on Google. Google only brings you the real stuff. But if you see black stars before description starts, and it says Doom and Bloom or Narcania or anything like that, it's a fake website. It's a bunch of hooey. <sighs> but anyway, I was looking it up, and I found Bear Bottle Brewing Company in San Francisco. In January, I guess there was some big beer fest they had. They created a beer called Doom Bloom. Not uh-huh. Doom and Doom Bloom, specially brewed for that competition. How about that? Well, I don't, I don't know how it did. <laughs> Well, but it, it's, it was not in a bottle because I was going to write to them and see if I can buy a few bottles. But it's just on tap, sadly. Oh, I know. How cool would that be to have a beer that says Doom Bloom? So if anybody has a microbrewery out there and you do a Doom and Bloom, contact us. We can help you with the logo. And, yeah. Oh, definitely buy some of those. How cool would that be? All right. Well, awesome sauce. Well, I'll tell you what. I've got some sad news. Of course, we can't read the news. I can't read the headlines. Without reading about another shooting here. And last week we talked about church shootings and what churches could do to protect themselves and people of faith in in these troubled times. Uh, We've talked about, um, oh, uh, we've talked about the shootings in Texas, Mm -hmm. shootings in Las Vegas. And of course, here we have another shooting in a church. And this is just really. And what's happening here is that they're like refining some kind of blueprint, these gunmen. I mean, what they're doing is I think they're learning from the previous shootings and they're like identifying softer targets, more diverse settings. I mean, there's a concert in Las Vegas, a church service in a small town in Texas. Jeez, you know, it should be pretty clear to you that there's just no place safe from the bad intentions of people that are deranged and disgruntled, politically motivated, maybe anti-Christian. Uh, we're going to be in a rough ride, in for a rough ride, in the near and, I think, distant future. Now, you might think that these guys being so successful, and I use that word in quotes, well, you know what? These guys are successful. Successful not because of random occurrences, but because of a plan of action, a blueprint that is being refined to really deadly effect, I think. And this selection of the targets is becoming like a science to them, and it's leading to higher and higher numbers of deaths and injuries. And if those people with bad intentions are getting better at creating mayhem, it stands to reason that our society has to get better at thwarting those intentions. Is that correct? Does that sound 
appropriate yeah, to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And this goal is best achieved by several means. And I, I have a few suggestions. I hope you'll put up with me for just a minute. Number one, improve, this is simple, improve security in places that are at risk. And I would define an area at risk as just about any place that a crowd of people gather. Um, better protections at malls, I think that's important. Uh, it could be just a hire at a mall. It could just be a matter of hiring more trained personnel. But in other places like a church or a workplace or, or someplace in a small town, mm-hmm. you know, a, a town commission meeting at a, at a small town, well, you know, you need to have a safety team, some people that are just there to make sure that people stay safe. And establishing a safety team or a safety ministry in a church, that can increase the level of vigilance and identify threats early. Well, it makes sense then in those in those kind of locations that the entrance to the location is usually in the back of where the seats are facing. And usually there's some sort of stage or podium and people have their backs to the entrance that they came through. Now, there's usually side exits, but your back, not only is your back to the entrance, but your focus is towards the front. And sometimes, depending on, you know, there was a concert going on when something happened, there was, you know, church services going on, there could have been some singing and and clapping and uh, people in the congregation joining in. I'm not sure if they were doing that. But those kind of noises muffle what could be happening in the back row or, or something upon the entrance of a person who's got ill intentions and we're, we're focused on what's going on. Usually the best thing to do is be quiet and listen or, you know, if people are active and interacting, you know, it's loud. It's really loud. I mean, so some of these things are occurring at concerts. For goodness most people are not in these kind of venues with facing the back right you know You're absolutely your attention right. is is what you came there for right think of your average theater and you know what you when you enter the movie theater in your local town it's just in the back you enter through a door in the back exactly and so the it's same thing with church and the same thing with a concert so it yeah you're absolutely right it is i mean maybe really we should different. change it to where you can only come in from the front Maybe we need to make those exit doors that can only be pushed from the inside and make the side doors where you're facing the new entrances. Maybe that's the way buildings need to be made now. Well, I think buildings need to be made. the new churches need to be have two entrances in the front on either side so people can, you know, file in. Nobody wants to make a big stink if they come in 10 minutes early. That's embarrassing. But, but... That both of those entrances is are visible by the people in the venue, whether it's a theater or a church, whatever, a city, community and, building, and whatever. And let's it is. change the entrance to to be in our vision and make more entrances, more exits, and entrances to these places, so there are more options for people to get the heck right out of there. But but so if you're building a church, build. It with a lot of entry, a lot of doors, a lot of exits, so that people can leave. I know, but do you, are you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, you know what I I'm understand saying? exactly. You can only come in where everyone can see. Yes. So everyone knows who's entering and what's happening because you're not turning your attention away from the podium or the stage, but in the corner of your eye, 
you see who's coming in and what's going on. And the nothing can get in from the back. That's an exit only, pushes out. Everybody can leave if there's an emergency. But entrances in the, in the visible spectrum of the people sitting down. Right. I, well, makes... Maybe we need to change where you come in and out of buildings now. Yeah, well, that is something you know? that we have to think about, absolutely. Another thing I think that's a, that might be a good idea is to start having a volunteer, volunteer safety department in small towns and rural areas. Now, they have... To watch volu- these areas. There are volunteer fire departments, right? Yep. And why not have volunteer safety departments, people that when they're notified that there's going to be a crowd at a certain place, that they go there and, and just sort of act as a volunteer to protect people. Now, of course, these people should have some kind of training. You train them in security. They may need to be trained in firearms. It's going to depend also. First aid for bleeding. Yes, but wait a second. It's going to depend on the size of the town. Oh, exactly. If it's a tiny little town, we're talking about volunteers. That's what I'm talking about. We're talking about community members, getting together, getting some training, um, having rules and regulations. Right. Don't break any laws, of course. Uh, of course, and, and rules of, of behavior and how how you behave while you're guarding, you know, that you're not off, you know, drinking a beer and sitting in your car texting your girlfriend when you're supposed to be up front watching out for the people. So have rules and regulations that everyone has to follow. Um, and then as the towns get bigger, maybe there can be a budget from the town to help pay for, if there's community events, for people who are not there to have fun, but who are specifically there to keep an eye out. Right, we don't, exactly. Not, they're not going to walk around, you know, with machine guns and, and full tactical gear and scare all the little kids, but they're there to just make other people feel a little safer and keep an eye out. Right, exactly. You and, know? And keep an eye out. Case, Be vigilant. And... Even if they just wind up notifying ambulances and police faster, yes, you know, then they'll have served their purpose. Exactly. So, of course, if you if you're in a large church or a large city, then obviously you can Might budget in organized. more security. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. Have someone come in and do training. Um, you know, we I, we have provided our multi-person kits for churches for their security teams. Right. These these people had organized. They had determined what they were missing, and part of that was medical training. And we did uh, for one of the churches. We did a um, bleeding class, a webinar live. We can see them. They could see us. They had us on the television screen in the church. Right, and we're happy to do that. And we demonstrated tourniquets and how to stop bleeding. And it was interactive. They could, you know, see us and ask questions. Um, and they're very, very happy. Right. And they we're now very happy. have supplies. They have several of the multi-person kits um, for different locations around the church. And they have a lot of personnel. And there were even people who were just church members that came and watched. You didn't, you didn't have to be security to watch how to put a tourniquet on. There was no you know, requirements of who was allowed to attend. It was open to everyone. So there were quite a few people watching, and and it was good. I I was happy to do community service to help others learn, and, and they were happy to learn. Right, and if you are out there and you have a church or a place of worship that could use 
help in this in this matter. Not mm-hmm. only, I'm talking I'm talking of course about education as well as supplies. I mean we're we're not just about putting together medical kits for you. We're we are here to educate people and also to give you the news about the current events. That's yep. what we do and we're very happy to put together webinars for churches or for large groups you know, that would like to know how to deal with bleeding wounds, for example, that's or, or active shooter situations, this is part of what we do. Well, this one class, just to let people know, it was, um, it was about an hour and 30 minutes, and then, you know, we gave some time for however many questions people asked. So it doesn't have to take up your whole day. It doesn't have to take up your whole life. If, if you guys have a, a community general meeting, you know, on Monday night evenings at 7 o'clock, you know, maybe we could be the ones that, you know, talk during the first hour and a half. So, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a, a big deal, and, and you can learn a lot. Absolutely. Even if you just take small pieces from from the class, you know, you might save a life. And that goes into my third thing, which is basically we should work to instill a culture of awareness, situational awareness in our society. And we talked about situational awareness many times before. It's a state of calm, relaxed observation of factors might indicate a threat. And these are what we call anomalies. And learning to recognize these anomalies can identify people who have bad intentions. So situational awareness, it means that you need to have a plan of action, that you, that you naturally always have a plan of action when a threat occurs. Even if it's as simple as making a note of the nearest exit at a uh, a theater or a mall or anything like that, or, or just a side street. If you're walking down the street, there are a lot of vehicular, vehicular terror events nowadays. And all of this seems so much like common sense, but in these days of being distracted by smartphones, so many people are just oblivious of their surroundings. It's just really important to start being self-aware again. Now, and aware of your surroundings. Another thing... We've got to, if we're going to instill a culture of situational awareness, we've got to start in school. We teach our students to avoid that natural paralysis that occurs in an unexpected event. And that occurs because we are always part of what we call a normalcy bias. And that's a tendency to discount any risks that may pop up because most days proceed in a certain standard manner. And we assume that today is going to be the same as every other day. But if we teach simple courses of action, such as the Department of Homeland Security, they have a run-hide-fight triad. If we just teach that and talk about that and different kinds of strategies related to that, well, the decision-making process may become more intuitive, more rapidly implemented. And the faster you spring into action, you know, the better it is. And this may be more effectively taught at a young age, uh, but anybody can learn it. And it's something that when seconds count, then, you know, having the just a natural tendency to do what you need to do to get out of harm's way instead of being paralyzed, well, that may save, may save your life. We also should teach our students simple first aid strategies to stop bleeding. The most likely cause of death in all these scenarios is hemorrhage, and rapid bystander action is thought to really decrease the number of deaths from bleeding wounds and so this is something very important you got to add reduced to reading writing and arithmetic 
as part of the school curriculum, reduce hemorrhage. If you do that, you're going to save a life somewhere down the road. I guarantee it. And then lastly, I, want, I think you should have first aid kits for bleeding in public venues that can be accessed by those people at the scene. With supplies, the Good Samaritan is more likely to save a life. And I predict that these kits, which are already on the market, we have them ourselves on our website at doomandbloom.net, they will be fixtures on the wall next to the fire extinguishers in the uncertain future. A sad statement, but it's what I think is going to happen. Now, despite these recommendations that I'm giving today, our response as a nation has been to do very little to correct this problem. And I say that this is an era of being unaware, of being oblivious, that must end. We have to stop being soft targets. We have to forsake the notion that shootings are just part and parcel of the new normal. We've got to begin the process by which we change our attitude or change our level of vigilance, uh, not our level of nervousness, not our level of panic, you know, and we need to do this, stay vigilant, not only in isolated cases, but as a society as a whole. And if we can be a prepared nation like that. We may not be invulnerable to attacks, but our citizens will certainly have a better chance to survive them. Well, you know what time it is? It is influenza season time. You think that uh, influenza is a winter thing, but influenza season actually runs in North America at least all the way from late fall, like right now, all the way to early spring. So let's talk a little bit about upper respiratory infections, some of the things that you would probably find yourself exposed to if not getting yourself getting during the next few months. And the most frequently seen respiratory infection, of course, is the common cold. It's responsible for more work and school days lost in the United States than any other illness. And the funny thing is the cold is not caused by a certain virus. It's caused by over 200 different viruses but most of them are in a certain family of viruses called the rhinovirus family. Believe it or not, rhino doesn't refer to the animal so much as it refers to the nose. And I guess a rhinoceros is called that because it's got a horn that I guess some people would consider looking to look like a nose. Now, symptoms of cold, simple, very simple. They appear one to three days after exposure. You'll see nasal congestion, sore throat, coughing, sneezing. Might get a low-grade fever, but definitely you'll have some muscle aches. You'll have fatigue, and those are some of the symptoms you'll experience. And a lot of viruses that cause symptoms that can be confused with the common cold, but the most likely of those is influenza. But another one that's caused community-wide pediatric outbreaks in the U.S. in the last few years is something called enterovirus D68. And enterovirus D68 is a member of a different kind of family, but it's a virus also, but it's in the same family that contains the polio virus. And it starts off looking just like the common cold, and that's as far as it goes in most cases. But sometimes, and there are outbreaks, it was an outbreak in Kansas City, which put about 50 kids in the hospital, it quickly progressed to a syndrome which included nausea and vomiting, severe breathing difficulties. A lot of these kids had asthma, which made it worse. And they needed advanced support in order for them to actually recover. So I think there were indeed a few deaths as a result. But mostly what I want to talk about today is influenza. Now, you probably won't just die as a result of getting a cold, but influenza, well, that's one of the great killers of modern times. 
Uh, in, in certain circumstances, it can become a worldwide outbreak, otherwise known as a pandemic. Uh, one of them, the Spanish flu of 1918, almost exactly 100 years ago, is thought to have caused 50 to 100 million deaths around the globe, killed at least 2% of the people that actually wound up getting the influenza. But there are more influenza outbreaks in the past. In 1880 and 1890, they had a flu called the Russian flu that killed a million people. The, the Asian flu in 1957-58 killed more than a million people. The Hong Kong flu in 68-69, about 750,000 deaths. And then there were been, have been minor ones like the swine flu epidemic in 2009 and 2010 caused about 18,000 deaths. Now, when I say this, I say, when I say 18,000 deaths, it doesn't sound like much over the, over the course of a, a worldwide pandemic, but we're talking about above the level of deaths that are caused by influenza normally in a given year. Influenza kills a lot of old people, sometimes kills a lot of very young people. Uh, it, it usually affects people in both a, in, in the far extremes of the age groups, but I'm talking about 18 additional deaths, 18,000 additional deaths over what you would have ordinarily have expected in a typical year. Influenzas are caused by influenza type A. That's the most common. There are various types of type A and type B viruses. They classify these things according to the proteins that exist on the surface of the virus. These are called, and you don't have to remember these, is all just medical speak, hemagglutinins and neuraminidases. Now, what you should remember is the first initial of each one, the H and the N, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, HN, because that's how they name these subtypes that they discover. The swine flu for uh, example is H1N1. The Hong Kong flu was H2N2. Right now, we're expecting the predominant virus to be H3N2 this year uh, in North America. And so each one of these viruses is slightly different from the others. And the more different that they are, the higher the death rate they'll be. So this is something that is very important. You'll hear, I guarantee you, you'll hear about H3N2 this year or H something N something being the predominant virus. Now, certain viruses are rarely seen in humans. Like you've heard of the avian flu or the bird flu. Uh, those are rarely seen unless you happen to work with poultry. Uh, you probably won't get it, but if you do get it, it could have a very high death rate. It's something we're not used to being exposed to as human beings. And so as a result, it kills us much more often. But luckily, most of today's influenza cases are not going to be fatal. People who succumb, as I said before, are pretty old or, pre or very, very young. Now, any influenza virus, however, can mutate. Viruses mutate. They change. They adapt. Uh, bird flu is almost never transmitted to humans, uh, except in poultry workers. But if somehow the bird flu mutated one day so that it passed more easily to humans or uh, went to humans more easily through the air, well, it would become a candidate for the next great pandemic, and it would kill a lot of people. With a viral mutation, we've got to talk about this for a second. The effect of the human on the human population depends on how different it is compared to the last year's virus. And the reason why that is, is because all these vaccinations that we give are based entirely on proteins from last year's virus. So when the new virus is about the same as last year's virus, uh, 
then vaccinations are very effective. When the virus changes and is not similar to the previous year's virus, well, then you have a big outbreak. You have big outbreaks all over the place and more indeed more deaths because the community hasn't developed immunity or resistance to that particular virus at the time. And one of the worst cases of this would be seen in the very early time of exploration of the New World where uh, all these European explorers who had, for who had been exposed to smallpox, which was an, a really bad disease that killed a lot of people in Europe, but over the course of time, the Europeans developed a, a, a certain amount of immunity to it. When they came over to the New World and met Native Americans, well, the Native Americans that were first exposed to smallpox virus wound up having absolutely no experience with it immunologically, and therefore they were killed by, by, by huge percentages, probably 95% of uh, Native Americans in some areas actually died as a result of being exposed to smallpox, and that cleared the way for lots of space for the first European settlers. So and it's interesting how one disease can just change the entire nature of, uh, of a continent. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how to recognize influenza. It does appear like uh, the common cold to begin with. Uh, it starts about one to four days after exposure. You'll see a very high fever. You'll see a cough, headaches, severe fatigue, severe muscle aches. Uh, you'll see cold. Uh, uh, you'll see a lot of different symptoms, and so therefore, it, and it sounds sort of like the common cold, right? But it is different. It has some subtle hints that you can tell that you're dealing with the flu. A cold will resolve itself over about a week or so. Influenza usually lasts longer, and they are more severe. The flu can weaken you so much that you get other infections, what we call secondary infections, even from things like bacteria that settle down deep in your lungs and cause you to get pneumonia. And these secondary infections are the most probable causes of death related to flu cases. If you notice uh, that you're getting worse, not better, over time with a what you think is a cold, and you might actually have the flu and, indeed, you might even have gotten a pneumonia based upon the flu. Now, there are other types of infections that are related to either viruses or bacteria. Everything I've mentioned so far is a virus, and for that reason, and antibiotics, which kill bacteria, really are just are not effective against them. So don't uh, use antibiotics like candy. You've got to use them wisely and only for situations where you really think you're handling uh, disease caused by a bacteria. One of those that you could probably tell that is a sort of an upper respiratory infection but is caused by a bacteria is called strep throat. And strep throat is caused by the bacteria Streptococcus pyogenes and it can affect the throat, the tonsils, the sinuses, ear canal. And it, it can be a secondary infection from a, a viral infection, a viral upper respiratory infection. But to tell the difference, to find out whether you have strep throat, if you were the medic, what you would want to do is you want to put on a mask, first off, because you don't want that going right into your nose and mouth. Uh, put a mask on and gloves, and then maybe with a tongue depressor, 
Look at the back of the oral cavity of the person who you suspect of having it. Strep throat's got to show the tonsils to be very swollen. Uh, most people that are, are young still have their tonsils. Uh, in the old days, they used to take them out pretty regularly. So if you have an older person, you may not notice them. But these tonsils are basically swellings that are in the back of the throat, one on the left, one on the right. And if you have a strep throat, usually these tonsils will have white spots or red spots uh, on the back of the throat. And it won't just be that, though. They'll have a high fever. They'll have a headache. Uh, uh, kids will have this oftentimes. But when they have it, there is usually not going to be a cough or a runny nose with that. That should give you the diagnosis. Now, if you have that, amoxicillin or Fishmox, 500 milligrams orally three times a day for seven to 10 days, or Keflex or Cephalexin, uh, Fishlex, 500 milligrams orally four times a day for seven to 10 days. That's what we usually use to treat strep throat. Now, there are some people that are allergic, are allergic to the penicillin family of drugs. In those circumstances, clindamycin, 300 milligrams orally four times a day, that can be used and will be just as effective. Now, there is, uh, in kids, another type of infection called epiglottitis. There's a structure called the epiglottis right around the area of the back of the throat. And it's essentially a flap that helps keep food from going down into the windpipe. And that would be bad. You want food to go down into the stomach, not into your lungs. So it serves a very important purposes. Now, viruses, bacteria, and even allergies can cause inflammation and swelling of this area. Uh, that causes the air to not be able to pass into the lungs because if that gets swollen, then the passageway that goes into the lungs becomes smaller and smaller. The airway gets smaller. So if you had a kid who had epiglottitis, that kid could be in really, really serious trouble. And a kid with epiglottitis is, can be identified. It tends to sit forward in an area, effort to get air. You also can see drooling because of, the, because of the blockage. You can't get rid of all the saliva. And if severe enough, this swelling can be life-threatening. You want to see people, um, you, you want to see symptoms like fever, hoarseness, and difficulty breathing. When they breathe, you might hear a whistle, when you, especially when you listen with the stethoscope. That's called strider, and that's a sign of a partial airway blockage. A kid that swallowed a peanut, for example, down the airway, that would also cause... It cause it, and it's a very striking, striking sound. We teach people how to recognize these sounds uh, by stethoscope in some of our eight-hour classes. And it is whenever they hear Strider for the first time, they're always pretty freaked out because it, it looks sounds pretty scary. It is pretty scary. Well, anyhow, these patients are in trouble. They need to have IV antibiotics. They need to have. Uh, endotracheal tubes, you may even, even need to have a tracheotomy in some circumstances. It is really, really a difficult thing that uh, just might be hard, very hard for the survival medic to deal with off the grid. Let's put it that way. You have a couple of other different types of uh, upper respiratory infections. Uh, I'd say sinusitis would be a very common one. Your sinuses are uh, these uh, air-filled spaces in the skull. They're, seem to, they're symmetrical, so you usually have one on each side uh, that surround the nose. And sinus infections, which are also called sinusitis, occur when germ-laden fluid 
fills compartment. These, these compartments are narrowly filled with, with air. Now, sinusitis can be called by viral, caused by viruses or, or bacteria or could be related even to non-infectious causes like allergies. So common signs include a thick mucus congestion like green or yellow, uh, a lot of green or yellow mucus. Um, if your pain hurts, it hurts around your cheeks or around your nose. Uh, if you have a low-grade fever, uh, cough, these are some things that you that you'll notice. Uh, and, and sometimes it's a particular sinus that's infected, so in that case, pain might be related to where it happens. There's one uh, called maxillary sinusitis, that's sort of upper jaw sinusitis, and so you'll see pain or pressure in the area of the cheek, and sometimes you'll see that caused by dental infections. There's a frontal sinusitis, which is in the forehead, and so you can see that, you have pain or pressure in the forehead area. Uh, another one that uh, causes pain or pressure behind the eyes or around the bridge of the nose, high up. It's called the ethmoid sinus. And there's another one called the sphenoid sinus, and that has pressure or pain behind the ears or behind the eyes. So lots of different areas where you can wind up getting sinusitis. And you can tell sinusitis a little bit by how the discomfort is when in a certain position. When you're bending over or lying down, you have more discomfort could be a sign of sinusitis and also sinusitis lasts a long time it can last from four weeks to more than eight weeks in some cases and there are also things that can recur so we see that a lot uh, it's hard to tell virus viral from bacterial but bacterial lasts longer than viruses so um, you treat these people with decongestants and antibiotics in in the circumstance that they lack it that they're lasting a very, very long time, then you might consider antibiotics like uh, amoxicillin, 500 milligrams a day, uh, three times a day, by the way, for 10 to 14 days. So how to identify colds versus flus versus um, allergies, let's say. Well, allergies, you'll oftentimes see people with red, itchy eyes. Their eyes are itchier, just bothering it, watering, all sorts, all sorts of things like that. That, to me, is an allergy in most cases. In other cases, you'll see people with, let's say, no problem with their eyes, but they have a very, very high fever. A severe. I mean, they have such severe muscle aches, and they're so tired that they just cannot function. I look at that person, and I think influenza. And colds, I think of somebody who has most of their symptoms associated with their nose, with nasal, nasal congestion, runny nose, things like that. That I think of more the common cold. So those are some tips with regards to respiratory infections. So that I think is important. Let's see, I have just a few minutes left. Let me see what I should talk about here. Now let me talk a little bit about how infections spread. Now, how does something like influenza go from person to person until the entire community is totally uh, ridden with the infection? That's a pretty serious issue for in medical communities, and that is in normal times. But an infectious disease that affects only one person is usually within the ability of a community to handle, of course. But if it spreads all over the place to everybody, well, you know, it can cause some real damage. 
Now, if you're the medic off the grid, it is a nightmare. And so therefore it's important for you medic to make sure you understand the mechanisms by which these outbreaks can actually occur and run rampant among your people. So there are various ways that infections are spread and you can control almost all of them to some extent at least. Uh, one way is by ingestion. Uh, in eating infected animals is a very common way for uh, disease-causing organisms. These are called pathogens, by the way, pathogens, uh, to spread among humans. And if you eat bushmeat a lot, for example, if you eat, uh, if you were in Africa during the time of Ebola, you ate bats and monkeys. Usually, you were eating them over a fire that was made in a fifty-five, uh, 55 uh, gallon oil drum. You probably didn't cook it very thoroughly. And that's how you wound up getting the disease because indeed it was not cooked well enough and it was in the natural, what they call reservoir. In other words, the animal that naturally harbors the illness. These animals, by the way, don't have to get sick. They could harbor it without any symptoms whatsoever. So that was the big thing with the Ebola virus. Of course, it can also be spread by inhalation. Now, if Ebola had been spread mostly by inhalation, spread through air drop, the droplets in the air, we would have had a much worse pandemic, a much worse epidemic than we wound up having there, and it would have probably spread throughout the world. Now, airborne spread can occur in all sorts of stuff. It can occur in saliva, it can occur in phlegm, blood splatter. Uh, coughing, sneezing, uh, it's about four to six feet that the average uh, sneeze winds up uh, blowing uh, droplets, germ-laden droplets uh, over your, in your direction. Uh, bodily fluids have a great, usually have a great deal of bacteria or viruses, sexual fluids and blood and things like that. Uh, Ebola was a big one for blood. Uh, and I think that from my standpoint, air droplets are the scariest type, and influenza is indeed a typical example of an airborne uh, spread virus, so the type of epidemic that can be spread via the air. So that, that's one. Then you also have injections. Uh, if an infection is spread by injection, of course, needle sticks, other medical items, uh, you'll wind up getting some pretty bad diseases, uh, a human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, uh, hepatitis, um, malaria. These are ways that you can get um, a pretty bad disease by injection. Now, notice I said malaria. Malaria, well, when they bite you, when a mosquito bites you and gives you malaria, they're sort of injecting right through this needle-like proboscis or mouth that they have. They're injecting this pathogen into you. So that's a way that you get it by injection. Uh, you can also get it by absorption. If you touch secretions from infected people and then touch your mouth or eyes or open an open sore, well, you're going to wind up having an infection that has been spread by absorption. You won't be, you won't believe how often this kind of thing happens. Just look at the average person for a while, count the number of times they touch their face, and you see that that is a very common way for people to wind up getting it. it the practice of family members uh, in West Africa washing the body of, dis, of dead Ebola victims, well, that was probably responsible for entire families being wiped out by the disease. Uh, it can be, there are diseases, infections that can be spread sexually, of course. We all know about syphilis and gonorrhea and 
probably chlamydia and a number of other ones, herpes, things like that. A number of infections are transmitted uh, from the semen or vaginal secretions of infected people. And indeed, Ebola was transmitted sexually too. It's one that uh, they found was transmitted sexually. But most of the time, you just have to have very close contact in order to be a candidate to get something transmitted in this fashion. Uh, then there's pregnancy. There are some diseases that are passed from mother to fetus. Uh, HIV is one. Syphilis is one. Zika virus was very famous in the news last year for causing uh, infections that damaged brain tissue in a lot of the infants in the area. And uh, luckily, it didn't turn out to be that bad this year, but it caused a lot of babies to be born with uh, small heads and and decreased brain development microcephaly is what they cause that and well that's a, a lifetime of misery for that family I can just guarantee you that and honestly I think that we have to include complacency as one of the reasons why people get infections and why, why infections are transmitted because lack of attention to control controlling infections especially by the medic and you know for his group is probably the biggest reason for the spread of pandemic diseases and certainly will be in times of trouble in any circumstance where you are off the grid and you do not have the benefits of modern medicine. Wow, you've been talking a lot. Well, I am. Hey, why don't you tell... Are you uh, out of breath? I am out of breath. Well, we are going to be... Uh, we are going to be at a show in... Um, Jacksonville. In Jacksonville. Tell us about that. Florida. Yes, um, that is the NPS show. I think it's NPSexpo.com. And that will be December 1st and 2nd of December. And uh, I was going to say of 2017. Let's see, uh, lots of booths. We will be teaching not a class at the expo, but on Sunday, because they're doing a Friday-Saturday class, something unusual, but on Sunday, we'll be doing that eight-hour class, which I think you were talking about a little bit uh, during your talkie talk here. So if you want to sign up to have the eight-hour class, just go to doomandbloom.net, click on the classes page, and you can get information there, and you can sign up and find out all of the awesome gifts we give and all of the topics that we talk about. And what, it's a lot of hands-on. What are some of them? <laughs> How did I know you were going to ask me that? I ask <laughs> Let's see. We talk about fractures and sprains and strains, so that would be under the orthopedic. We talk about, oh, vital signs. Um, not too much of the class, but we do teach you how to take a pulse, how to listen to the lungs, and we have some of the sounds that um, you were talking about earlier, honey, um, the different wheezing and how to tell if there's something stuck in there and um so you kind of get an idea of how that would sound without us actually bringing in sick people <laughs> and we talk about uh hypothermia hyperthermia we talk about bleeding big issue that's a big part of it burns <laughs> you can say that out loud honey <laughs> don't forget the burns burns we do we do talk about burns and how to dress them and how to care for some pretty severe burns if you're the end of the road so right and bleeding wounds and we did i just packing wounds i just talk about bleeding wounds chronic wound care 
something that you wouldn't need to do mm -hmm. in normal times. Tourniquets, but, mm -hmm. sea locks, lots and lots of good stuff. And then, of course, the last couple hours is the suture staple wound care. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Hands-on class. So it's a full day. If I wrote eight hours, um, I didn't mean it because it's probably more like nine. When do we finish? Probably good, finish good six, nine hours. Nine and a half. Nine and a half nine, hours. nine and a half hours easily. So if you are the medic for your family, you want to learn how to be proficient and have a, a much better chance of being effective in that role, mm -hmm. check out our eight-hour class. If not, just come see us in Jacksonville if you happen to be in the Jacksonville, Florida area, December 1st and 2nd. Yes. And we'll be there. And December 3rd is the eight-hour class. Oh. And, uh, eight hour. So exactly. like you said, one hour. <laughs> eight hour. And uh, we'll also have a lot of our medical kits for you to take a look at and and see if uh, there's something there that might strike your fancy absolutely so i think that we are we will be at the shot show also oh yes uh, we haven't uh, that's in january yep and we have been uh, offered a very exclusive spot as a a company that doesn't make wounds because we, we don't, don't make, sell sell guns we but we don't have a range we yeah. don't produce bullets we don't make guns but we do heal wounds <laughs> and so right. if, i guess if everybody should have something to heal wounds if That's they have right. <laughs> the ability to make wounds so we will be in las vegas for the shot show i hope you'll come by being safe and see yes <laughs> being very safe in vegas exactly right you know we are just about out of time i want to thank everybody for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alden, also known as Dr. Bones, and this beautiful creature, Amy Alden, ARMP. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.